Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 7 Jeb Stuart's Ball. Part 2 Jackson was riding slowly along the near edge of the river. He could never appear without rolling cheers from the thirty thousand veteran troops who were eager to follow wherever he led. The mighty cheering swept back and forth in volumes, and when a lull came, one among their friends, the Yankee pickets on the other side of the river, called at the top of his voice, "'Hey, Johnnies, what's that racket about?' "'It's Stonewall Jackson!' Harry roared back, pointing to the figure on the horse. Then, to the amazement of all, a sudden burst of cheering came from the far bank of the Rappahannock, followed by the words, shouted in chorus, Hurrah for Stonewall Jackson! Hurrah for Jackson! Thus did the gallant northern troops show their admiration for their great enemy, whose genius had defeated them so often. Some riflemen among them, lying among the bushes at the water's edge, might have picked him off. But no such thought entered the mind of anyone. Jackson flushed at the compliment of the foe, but he rode quietly on, until he disappeared among some woods on the left. "'We'd better be going back to headquarters,' said Harry to Dalton. "'It'd be wise for us to be there when their general arrives.' "'That's right, lazy little boys,' said Happy Tom." Wash your faces, run to school, and be all bright and clean when teacher comes. That's what we mean to do, said Harry. And if Arthur says anything more about this silly dueling business, send for us. We'll come back, and we three together will pound his foolish head so hard he won't be able to think about anything at all for a year to come. I'll behave, said St. Clair, but you fellows look to Bertrand. Dalton and Harry walked to the headquarters of their general, who now occupied what had been a large hunting lodge standing in the grounds of a large mansion. The whole place, the property of an orderly in his service, had been offered to him, but he would only take the hunting lodge, saying that he would not clutter up so fine and large a house. Now Harry and Dalton walked across the lawn, which was beginning to turn green, and paused for a little while under the budding boughs of the great trees. The general had not yet arrived. But the rolling cheers never ceased, but coming nearer indicated that he would soon be at hand. A man must feel tremendous pride when his very appearance draws such cheers from his men, said Harry. The lawn was not cut up by the feet of horses. Jackson would not allow it. Everything about the house and grounds was in the neatest order. Beside the hunting lodge stood a great tent in which his staff messed. "'Were you here the day General Jackson came to these quarters, Harry?' asked Dalton. "'No, I was in service at the bank of the river, carrying some message or other. "'I've forgotten what it was.' "'Well, I was. We didn't know where we were going to stay, "'and a lady came from the big house here, down to the edge of the woods, "'where we were still sitting on our horses. "'Is this General Jackson?' asked she. "'It is, madame,' he replied, lifting his hat politely. "'My husband owns this house,' she said, pointing towards it, 
and we will feel honored and glad if you will occupy it as your headquarters while you are here. He thanked her and said he would ride forward with a cavalry order and inspect the place. The rest of us waited while he and the orderly rode to the grounds, the lady going on ahead. The general wouldn't take the house. He said he didn't like to see so fine a place trodden up by young men in muddy military boots. Besides, he and his staff would disturb the inmates, and he didn't want that to happen. At last he picked the hunting lodge, and as he and the orderly rode back to the gate of the grounds, the orderly said, General, do you feel wholly pleased with what you have chosen? It suits me entirely, replied General Jackson. I'm going to make my headquarters in that hunting lodge. I am very glad of that, sir, very glad indeed. Why? asked General Jackson. Because it's my house, replied the orderly, and my wife and I would have felt greatly disappointed if you had gone elsewhere. And all this splendid place belongs to an orderly, said Harry. Funny you didn't hear that story, said Dalton. Most of us have, but I suppose everybody took it for granted that you knew it. As you say, that grand place belongs to one of our orderlies. After all, we're a citizen army, just as the great Roman armies, when they were at their greatest, were citizen armies too. Ah, here comes the general now, said Harry, and he looks embarrassed, as he always does after so much cheering. A stranger would think from the way he acts that he is the least conspicuous of our generals, and if he read the reports of his victories, you'd think that he had less than anybody else to do with them. General Jackson, followed by an orderly, cantered up. The orderly took the horse, and the general went into the house, followed by the two young staff officers. They knew that he was likely to plunge at once into work, and they were ready to do any service he needed. I don't think I'll want you boys, said the general in his usual kindly tone. At least not for some time. You can go out and enjoy the sunshine and warmth of which we have had so little for a long time. Thank you, sir, said Harry. But he added hastily, Here come some officers, sir. Jackson glanced through the window of the hunting lodge and caught sight of a waving plume just as the wearer passed through the gate. That's Stuart, he said, with an attempt at severity in his tone, although his smiling eye belied it. I suppose I might as well defer my work if Jeb Stuart is coming to see me. Stay with me, lads, and help me to entertain him. You know Stuart is nothing but a joyous boy, younger than either of you, although he is one of the greatest cavalry leaders of modern times. Harry and Dalton were more than willing to remain. Everybody was always glad when Jeb Stuart came. Now he was in his finest mood, and he and the two staff officers with him rode at a canter. They leaped from their horses at Jackson's door, throwing the reins over their necks and leaving them to the orderly. Then they entered boldly, Stuart leading. He was the only man in the whole southern army who took liberties with Jackson, although his liberties were always of the inoffensive kind. If St. Clair was gorgeous in his new clothes, he would have been pale beside Stuart, who also had new raiment. A most magnificent feather loped and draped about his gold-braided hat. His uniform, of the finest cloth, was heavy with gold braid and gold epaulets. 
and the great yellow silk sash about his waist supported his gold-hilted sword what new and splendid species of bird is this asked general jackson and stuart and his men saluted i have never before seen such grand plumage stuart complacently stroked the gold braid on his left sleeve and looked about the hunting lodge the walls of which had been decorated accordingly long since by its owner splendid picture this of a racehorse general he said and the one of the trotter in action is almost as fine ah sir i knew there were good sporting instincts in you and that they would come out in time i approve of it myself and what will the members of your church say sir when they hear of your moral decline jackson actually blushed and remained silent under the chaff and here is a picture of a greyhound and here of a terrier continued the bold stuart oh general you're not only going in for racing but for coursing dogs as well and maybe fighting dogs too throughout the south all the old ladies look up to you as our highest moral representative what will they think when they hear these things it will be worse than a great battle lost general stuart said jackson i know more about racehorses than you think i do he would add no more but harry had learned that when quite a small boy he had ridden horses in backwoods races for a sport-loving uncle but stuart continued his jests and jackson secretly enjoyed them the two men were so opposite in nature that they were compliments and each liked the society of the other the two lads and the staff officers went outside presently and the two generals were left together to talk business for a quarter of an hour when stuart emerged he glanced at harry and dalton and beckoned to them when they came up he had mounted but he leaned over and pointing a long finger in a buckskin glove and turned to each he said can you dance yes sir replied harry and you sir knight of the sober mine i can try sir said dalton but can you make it a good try i can sir that's the right spirit well there's going to be a ball down at my headquarters tonight not a little two-penny half-penny affair but a real ball a grand ball the bands of the fifth virginia and the acadians will be there to play alternating you're invited and you're coming i've already obtained leave from general jackson for you both i wish the general himself would come but he's just received a theological book that dr graham at winchester had sent him and he's bound to spend most of the night on that put on your best uniforms and be there just after dark harry and dalton accepted eagerly and stuart a genuine knight of old alike in his courage and love of adornment rode out of the grounds there goes a man who certainly loves life said dalton and don't you love it and don't i love it mr philosopher and cynic said harry so we do but as general jackson said general stuart is a boy younger than either of us i hope to be the same kind of boy when i'm his age stuart was riding on looking about with a luminous eye fired by the spirit within him and the great landscape spread out before him it was a noble landscape the wooded ranges stretching to the right and left and the long sweep of rolling country between the somber ruins of fredericksburg 
were hidden from view just then, but in front of him flowed the great Rappahannock, still black with floods, and ice yet flowing near the banks. Stuart drew a deep breath. It was a beautiful part of Virginia, old and with many fine manor-houses scattered about. And the people, educated, polite, accustomed to everything, gladly sacrificed all they had for the Confederacy in its hour of need. They had cut up their rugs and carpets and sent them to the great camp on the Rappahannock so that the soldiers who had no blankets might use them. The cattle and poultry from the rich farms were also sent to Lee's men. Virginia sacrificed herself for the Confederate cause with a devotion that would have brought tears from a stone. Some such thoughts as these were in the mind of Stuart as he rode toward his own camp. There was a mist for a few moments before the eyes of the great horseman, but as it cleared he became once more his natural self, the gayest of the gay. He hummed joyously as he rode along, and the refrain of the song was, Old Joe Hooker, won't you come out of the wilderness? Harry and Dalton had gone back to the big mess tent, and were already arraying themselves with the utmost care for Jeb Stuart's ball. Their clothes were in good condition now. After the long rest they had been able to brush and furbish up their best uniforms, until they were both neat and bright. They had no thought of rivaling St. Clair, who undoubtedly would be there, but they were satisfied. They never expected to rival St. Clair in that respect. But they were splendid youths, fine, tall, upstanding, and with frank eyes and tanned faces. Will many girls be there? asked Dalton. Oh, of course. They'll come in from all the country around as be at Jeb Stewart's ball. I wish we could invite a few of the Yankees over to see what girls we have in Virginia. Yeah, that would be fine, but Hooker wouldn't let them, and Lee and Jackson would certainly disapprove. Harry and Dalton started at twilight, and on their way they met Captain Shelburne, who was bound for the same place. The captain was pretty fond of good dress himself, and he too had a new uniform, perhaps not so bright as St. Clair's, but fine and vivid nevertheless. "'Well, well,' said Harry, as he greeted him heartily. "'You've got a lot of shine about you, don't you? But you just watch out for St. Clair, he's sure to be there.' and he has a new uniform straight from Charleston. He's making the most of it, too. Now may be the time to settle that sartorial rivalry between you. All right, said Shelburne joyously. I'm ready, come on. The house, a large one standing in ample grounds, was already lighted as brilliantly as time and circumstances afforded. It is true that most of these lights were of homemade tallow candles, because no other illumination was to be had and they made a brave show to these soldiers, who were used so long only to the light of their fires and the moon and stars. Before these lights people were passing and repassing, and the sounds of pleasant voices reached their ears, but they were stopped by four figures just emerging from the shadows. The four were Colonel Leonidas Talbot, just returned from Richmond, Lieutenant Colonel St. Hillier, Lieutenant Arthur St. Clair, Lieutenant Thomas Langdon, all arrayed with great care and bearing themselves haughtily. 
Shelburne and St. Clair cast quick glances at each other, but each remained content, because the taste of each was gratified. The meeting was most friendly. Harry and Dalton were very glad to see Colonel Talbot, whom they had missed very much, but Harry detected at once a note of anxiety in the voice of each colonel. Hector, said Colonel Talbot, I shall certainly dance. What, to go to Jeb Stewart's ball and not dance, when the fair and bright young womanhood of Virginia is present, and I a South Carolinian? What would they think of my gallantry, Hector, if I did not? It is certainly fitting, Leonidas. I used to be a master myself of all the steps, waltz and gavotte, and the Virginia reel and the others. Once, when I was only twenty, I went to New Orleans to visit my cousins, the de Crespinis, and many of them there were, four brothers with seven or eight children apiece, and mostly girls. And upon my soul, Leonidas, for the two months I was gone, I did little but dance. What else could one do, when he had about twenty girl cousins, all of dancing age? We danced in New Orleans, and, and we danced out on the great plantation of Louis de Crespigny, the oldest of the brothers, and all the neighbors for miles around danced with us. There was one of my cousins, a third cousin only she was, Flora de Crespigny, just seventeen years of age. What a beautiful girl, Leonidas, a most beautiful girl. They ripened fast down there. Once at the de Crespigny plantation I danced all day and all the night following, mostly with her. Young Gerard de Lingace, her betrothed, was furious with jealousy, and just after the dawn, neither of us having slept, we fought with swords behind the live oaks. I was not in love with Flora, and she was not in love with me, but de Lingace thought we were, and he would not listen to my claim of kinship. I received a glorious little scratch on my left side, and he suffered an equally glorious little puncture in his right arm. The seconds declared enough. Then we fell into the arms of each other and became friends for life. A year later I went back to New Orleans, and I was the best man at the wedding of Gerard and Flora, one of the happiest and handsome pairs I ever saw. God bless them. Their third son, Julian, is in the regiment in the command of Longstreet, and when I look at him I see both his father and his mother, at whose wedding I danced again for a whole day and night. But now, Leonidas, I fear my knees are growing a little stiff, and think of our age, Leonidas. Age, age. Hector, Lucien, Philip, Etienne, St. Hilaire. How dare you talk of age? Your years are exactly the same as mine, and I can outride, outwalk, outdance, and if need be, make love better than any of these young cubs who are with us. I am astonished at you, Hector. Why, it's been only a few years since you and I were boys. We've scarcely entered the prime of life, and we'll show em at Jeb Stewart's ball. That's so, Leonidas, and you do well to rebuke me. And Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hillier puffed out his chest. He was, in fact, a fine figure of a man. We'll go to Jeb Stuart Ball, as you say, and in the presence of the Virginia Fair, show everybody what real men are. And we'll be glad to see you do it, Colonel, said Shelburne. The dancing had not yet begun, but as they entered the grounds, the Acadian band swung into the air of the Marseillaise, playing the grand old revolutionary tune with all the spirit and fervor with which Frenchmen must have first played and sung it. Then it swung into the soul-stirring march of Dixie, 
and a wild shout, which was partly feminine, came from the house. The two colonels walked on ahead, leaving the young officers behind. Langdon caught sight of a figure standing before an open door, with a fire blazing in a large fireplace serving as a red background. That background was indeed so brilliant that every external detail of the figure could be seen. Langdon stopping, pulling hard on the arms of Harry and Shelburne. Halt all, he said, and tell me if in truth I see what I see. Go on, said St. Clair. Item number one, a pink dress of some gauzy filmy stuff, with ruffle after ruffle around the skirt. Correct. Item number two, a pink slipper made of silk perchance, with the toe of it just showing beyond the hem of the skirt. You observe well, my lord. Item three, a fair and slim white hand, and a round and beautiful wrist. Correct. Again thou observest well, Sir Lancelot. Item four, a rosy young face, which the firelight makes more rosy, and a crown of golden hair, which this same firelight turns deeper gold. Correct. Ye squire of fair ladies, and now lead on. They entered the great house, and found it already filled with officers and women, most of whom were young. The visitors had brought with them the best supplies that the farms could furnish, turkeys, chickens, hams, late fruits well preserved, and above all, that hero-worship with which they favored their champions. To these girls and their older sisters, the young officers who had taken part in so many great battles were like the knights of old, splendid and invincible. There was no warning note in all that joyous scene. Although a hostile army of 135,000 men and 400 guns lay on the other side of the river which flowed almost at their feet, it seemed to Harry afterward that they danced in the very face of death, caring nothing for what the dawn might bring. Stuart was in great feather. In his finest apparel, he was the very life and soul of the ball, and these people forgot for a while the desolation into which war was turning their country. The Virginia band and the Acadians carried on an intense but friendly rivalry, playing with all the spirit and vigor of men who were anxious to please. It was a joy to Harry, when he was not dancing, to watch them, especially the Acadians, whose faces glowed as the dancers and their own bodies swayed to the music they were making. Harry and his comrades were very young, but youth matures rapidly in war, and they felt themselves men. In truth, they had done the deeds of men for two years now, and they were treated as such by the others. Bertrand was also present, and while he'd cast a dark look or two at St. Clair, he kept away from him. By and by another young man, obviously of French blood, appeared, but he was not dark. He had light hair, blue eyes, and he was tall and slender, but the pure strain of his Gallic blood showed nevertheless, as clearly as if he had been born in northern France itself. Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hillier welcomed him with warmth and pride, and introduced him to the lads, who at the moment were not dancing. 
This is that young cousin of mine of whom I was speaking, he said. It is Julien de Lenguesse, son of that beautiful cousin Flora de Crespigny, and that gallant and noble man, Gerard de Lenguesse, with whom I fought the duel. I did not know you would be here, Julien, and the surprise makes the pleasure all the greater. I did not know myself, sir, until an hour ago that I could come, replied young de Lenguesse. But it is a glorious sight, sir, and I am truly glad to be here. His eyes sparkled at the sight of the dancers, and his feet beat time to the music. Harry saw that here was one who was in love with life, a soul akin to that of Langdon, and he and his comrades liked him at once and without reservations. Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire saw how they received him, and his splendid moustaches curled up with pleasure. Go with them, Julian, and they will see that you enjoy yourself to the full. They are good boys. I have a dance with that beautiful Mrs. Edgehill, and if I am not there, Leonidas, honorable and lofty as he is, but weak where the ladies are concerned, will insert himself into my place. Go, sir, do not delay on my account, said young de Lenguesse. I'm sure that I will fare well here. Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire turned away. Both he and Colonel Talbot were fully maintaining their reputations as dancing men. St. Clair and Langdon had partners, and making apologies they left to join them. Harry and Dalton remained with de Lenguesse. Colonel St. Hilaire said you were with Longstreet, said Harry. I am, or rather was, at least our regiment belongs to him. But when he was detached to meet the possible march in Richmond, we were left with General Lee, and I'm glad of it. The great operations are sure to be where Lee and Jackson are. They got along so well that in another hour they felt as if they had known de Langues all their lives. The night lengthened. Refreshments were served at times, but the dancers took them in relays. The dancing in the ballroom never ceased, and Jeb Stuart nearly always led it. It was after midnight now, and Harry and his new friend de Langues, throwing their military cloaks over their shoulders, walked out on one of the porticos for air. Many people, black and white, had gathered as usual to watch the dancing. Harry glanced at them casually, and then he saw a large figure almost behind the others. His intuition was sudden, but he had not the least doubt of its accuracy. He merely wondered why he had not looked for the man before. "'Come with me a minute,' he said to de Langues, and they walked towards the tree. But Shepard was gone, and Harry had expected that too. He did not intend to hunt for him any further, because he was sure not to find him. The brilliant spirit of the ball suddenly departed from him, and as he and de Langues went back towards the house, it was the stern call of war that came again. The deep boom of a cannon rolled from a point on the Rappahannock, and Harry was not the only one who felt the chill of its note. The dancing stopped for a few moments. Then the gloom passed away, and it was resumed in all its vigor. But Stuart came out on the porch, and Harry and de Langues halted, because they heard the hooves of a galloping horse. 
The man who came was in the dress of a civilian, and he brought a message. End of chapter 7, part 2 Recording by Michael Packard